Please support the Climate Change and Happiness podcast. See the donate page at climatechangeandhappiness.com. The climate is changing at an accelerating pace. Thousands of residents and tourists have been evacuated from the region. No one country can solve this problem. There's really one key message that emerges from this report. We are out of time. Welcome to Climate Change and Happiness, an international podcast that explores the personal side of climate change, your feelings, what the crisis means to you, and how to cope and thrive. And now, your hosts, Thomas Doherty and Panu Pikala. Well, hello, I'm Thomas Doherty. And I am Panu Pikala. And welcome to Climate Change and Happiness, our podcast. This is a show for people around the globe who are thinking and feeling deeply about climate change and other environmental issues. And there's no loss of things to think and feel deeply about in our world and in our lives. Uh, and we are really happy to have a special guest today with our podcast. Great to be with you. Hi, guys. I'm uh, Tim Lomas. I'm... I'm from London, but I live in Seattle, and I'm a psychology research scientist with the Human Flourishing Program at Harvard. Great. Well, that's a surprise. I didn't know you lived in Seattle, Tim. You're close. You're close to me. That's great. Um, oh, nice. It's beautiful. Yeah, we we love it here. Yeah. Well, we're really happy to have Tim here. Uh, Panu and I, as sort of students of emotions and psychology and environmental words and language, have are both really familiar with Tim. He's written a lot of interesting books on. Um, all kinds of aspects of what we call positive psychology, psychology, psychology of well-being and happiness. And he has um, great books about different words from around the world, some that are kind of untranslatable in English that capture different emotional states. Uh, so we were going to talk about that today uh, and just see how this all comes together with our feelings and uh, our emotions and feelings around climate change and this whole provocative idea of climate change and happiness what does it mean to be happy in the in the modern world and what what tools can we pull from from some of the work that tim is doing um but panu do you want to get us started in our dialogue today yes very warmly welcome tim also on my my behalf uh very glad to have you have you here and among other things your book the positive power of negative emotions has been important for me and i think it's highly relevant also in relation to climate emotions or eco emotions which we discuss here here a lot but uh, as thomas mentioned you have been writing a lot about nature related words or words related to the modern human human world and you uh, uh, certainly have an interest towards the natural world, but would you like to start by telling us a bit about your own journey in that, that regard? Has this interest uh, towards the world be, been with you uh, ever since childhood or how, how did it go for you? So in terms of this this words journey I've been you know involved with for the past, I guess, six or seven years. Um, I suppose the main starting point was when I was 19, I went to China to teach English. So in, in England, we do, some people do like a gap year where they take a year out before university. Mm -hmm. So, you know, I was keen to do that just to see the bit of the world. And actually my mom said, you should go to China because she wanted an excuse to, to come visit. So I thought, okay, but I mean, mm -hmm. it, I, I was very willing to go because, you know, even before then, 
um, you know, my dad's very into philosophy and psychology. And, you know, there was books about Buddhism around the house and related things. And so, so I was already, you know, I'd already read, for example, and Zen and the Art of Motorcycle Maintenance, which I think uh-huh. is still my favorite book. I must have read it half a dozen times. And, you know, so I, I was very intrigued by ideas such as Buddhism. And uh, then when my mom suggested China, then I really led to the idea because I had lots of romantic mm-hmm. notions about the place. And so I spent six months there before university and then also went back the next summer for a few months. And, you know, both trips traveled around a lot, visited Buddhist and Taoist monasteries, went into Tibet for a bit. Um, and had these just amazing experiences and like like obviously it sounds almost trite to say but you know it, the trip completely blew my mind and all my horizons completely expanded in every sense really because you know i'd grown up in london and i'd done some traveling around europe but this was coming into a kind of a really different environment especially kind of at that age and then you know most relevantly here in terms of the words project really encountering all these ideas that i'd never come across before and had very little frame of reference for, you know, so when you go into these, you know, encounter the Buddhist monasteries or texts and then hear about principles and ideas that, you know, even if someone tries to translate it or tries to describe it, I still didn't really have any cognitive frame of reference for properly understanding it. So really just becoming aware there was so much that's outside the boundaries of my own, you know, intellectual, cognitive, mental horizons, so much I didn't know about the world, so much there was to discover uh, elsewhere, how much, you know, for example, as someone interested in psychology, I was enrolled due to study psychology at university, being aware of the kind of complexities of the theories of the mind and well-being in Buddhism and so on. Then having this striking experience when I went back to, because I went to Edinburgh to do psychology and, you know, it's a wonderful place and it's a wonderful course, but, you know, some of the ideas are, well, becoming increasingly aware that the textbooks and things I was studying made very little reference, if any, to kind of Buddhist or Taoist ideas. There was the odd mention of mindfulness at that point. Mm-hmm. Um, there was some work around meditation, but, you know, I was so aware that psychology as I was studying it was very Western-centric. And then there was so much in other cultures that, you know, was similarly, if not, you know, deeper and richer, that had so much to say about the mind and life and well-being that we weren't really learning, you know, and so that kind of feeling stayed with me, even as I was, uh, you know, trying to study psychology. I took a detour mm-hmm. for some years into mm-hmm. music, Thomas, you know what I'm saying? So, you know, in my 20s, tried to be a musician, which was, which was great. I mean, we, we did a lot, but we didn't make that much money. So eventually we all, um, you know, I did have a long-term plan to get into psychology. I realized that music's not like a long-term really career plan unless you're very good or very lucky. So even while I was doing the band, I was still working part-time as a psychiatric nursing assistant, you know, just um, thinking that I would eventually try and get a career in psychology in some way and then got the chance to do a PhD, like in my late 20s, at the University of Westminster. And that was on meditation and Buddhism, the impact of meditation on men's mental health. And then, too, this notion of words and ideas from other cultures cropped up, you know, because these were men, mostly just Londoners, who had engaged in meditation in their own way. But in their interviews, they'd be using words from Pali or Sanskrit, you know, and they wouldn't try and translate them. And it would just almost be taken for granted that they'd be understood or at least be, it made sense for them to be using these foreign words. They would talk about mm-hmm. concepts like metta, which often gets translated as like loving kindness, mm-hmm. which is, I guess, fair. 
a fair translation. Uh, you know, but they would use just meta. They wouldn't call it loving kindness. And their discourse was full of these words. So I thought it was interesting using these words and the fact that they didn't use an English equivalent at that point struck me as interesting. Like, I'm not a linguist, so I wouldn't have used the word untranslatable at that point. But um, I guess getting to the point of how this project actually started, you know, I was kind of meandering along doing different kinds of research. And then in 2015, went to this conference. And in fact, Panu, she's a, she's a Finnish researcher, a wonderful researcher, Amelia um, Elizabeth Lati. And she, she did this incredible presentation on a Finnish mm -hmm. concept called Sisu. Yeah which um, I won't do justice to here because that's part of the point of representation. You can't easily describe it. I mean, it does overlap with English concepts like English words, like grit and resilience. But, you know, it's multi-layered, multi-dimensional. She was doing a PhD on the topic, which was getting to the, you know, getting into the complexities and the nuances of the concept. So, um, and also just describing how important and integral it is to Finnish identity and culture. But she also had a nice message that it's not just for Finnish people. You know, she was saying this is a, you know, potentially a universal experience or uh, state that psychology should pay attention to. We should bring it into the, into the fold of concepts we think about. And for some reason that really struck a chord, I guess, things that have been crystallizing in my mind suddenly, um, I guess, took shape, you know, so... I got back to England and I was talking with my mum again when I, I went to see her. And then we had this conversation about words in other languages because she speaks several other languages. And then by the end of that conversation, I thought I would try and just collect as many of these words as possible. Um, just because there's such a, an amazing, I guess, window into other cultures, you know, because if there's a word exists in another language that we don't have in English, I would just back up and say some linguists will say words they have an issue with the term untranslatable, you know, because you know, they might argue that mm. nothing is ever strictly untranslatable because you can convey a sense or nothing is ever strictly translatable because something's always slightly lost in translation. But mm -hmm. the way I've been using it is basically we don't have an exact equivalent. Um, and, you know, that can be in various ways, you know, because we might have a general word, but other languages have a more specific word. So, for, like, I did... For, uh, one paper on love, for example, and we use love for like so many different emotional states and experiences. Uh, and many languages have words for specific forms or types of love, you know. So if you translated them as love, that's not wrong, but it's also not as accurate yeah. as it could be, let's say. You know, you might want to use love with an adjective or something. So um, there's various ways in which words can be untranslatable, but the point was, you know, if another language has created, coined a word, that's significant because it shows that they've noticed or valued or uh, a particular phenomenon that perhaps we haven't in our English-speaking cultures. We've overlooked it or downplayed it or just missed it or it's just not important for some reason. So finding these words is just an interesting window into these other cultures. Like to give an example from, you know, the PhD, I studied, mentioned the PhD was on meditation. You know, in Eastern languages, there's this incredibly granular language around meditative states and practices that we yeah. just, just don't really have in English language. You know, we have meditation and we have some related words and uh, for different states, but it's so much more granular in those languages because they've paid such attention to these states and practices. So, you know, if I was interested in studying meditation, which I am, you know, that's one way in is to look at these different words and then say, what does that tell us about, you know, the complexities of meditation mm -hmm. as different states? So really it came from there and then, you know, I've been trying to collect these words uh, with the help of other people. You know, I set up this website that people started uh, sending me suggestions, you know, because I don't actually 
it's funny, I don't really speak many other languages. I speak some French. I learned French at school. Um, and I picked up some Chinese when I was in China. But um, so it's mostly with the help, actually, with people who speak those languages, because it's obviously hard for me to know if a word is untranslatable. So you kind of rely on people who are bilingual, who would speak English and another language and say, well, we have this word in our language that you don't have an exact equivalent in English. And then yeah. it's it's kind of from those sources, either from people writing in books or people writing into me or making suggestions that I've helped you know, create this list. And then I put it up on the website so people can help me refine the definitions. Mm -hmm. I always say it's a work in progress because, mm -hmm. you know, all, given that they're untranslatable, it's hard to kind of put a definition that's really going to capture it, especially when you get into the more complex terms like Nirvana or something. Mm -hmm. You could write a whole book and not do it justice. But and never least, I try and at least attempt a, a vague rendering that makes sense. Yeah. Um, so anyway, that's been... I'll, I'll stop there for now. I'll let you might have some questions. But that's been really the project that's been ongoing for since, what, 2015, 2016? Yeah. I think, um, Pana, I'm sure you have some thoughts, but I, I think it would be helpful for the listeners for us to share some of these words so they can get a flavor. Uh, a flavor you mentioned, uh, Sisu, which is this Finnish concept of uh, being tough and enduring and, and determined and different ways, Pana, you can, you can add into that. Uh, I'm, I've been interested in words like saudade, a Portuguese uh, word, you know, that, that kind of mm -hmm. longing and melancholy. Well, the point being, I think we can use some of these words to shine light on our different emotions around nature and the natural world. I mean, there's new words like solastalgia, which people talk about, which is this kind of loss as the world is changing around us. And that's nice, but some of these, there's some beautiful, lovely words, I think, that, that just elevate our experience. Like sadaj is, sadad, I don't pronounce it properly, but you know, it's this idea of longing and um, kind of a, 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 a sensual longing for something that's lost. And I think we, we can feel that on a day as the world is changing and our summer is changing and things like that. So mm. I wonder about some of the, or even some of the other words that, uh, like what are some of the words, uh, the meditation words or some of the words, Tim, that you really, are there other words that you think might translate regarding nature, nature feelings? Sure, yeah. I mean, there's lots of beautiful ones related to nature, but also the one that just bubbled to the top of my mind, partly because I've just been in Japan. But, you know, there's lots of words around mm -hmm. Japanese aesthetics that apply to our appreciation of nature. People might be familiar with wabi-sabi mm -hmm. and terms like that, which um, I think have an application to nature because... It kind of speaks to what we consider to be beautiful. And then sometimes with our civilizations, there's this sense that things, you know, we have to value things that are new and pristine. Whereas, you know, when we're in a forest, I will say, you know, there's an obvious sense that lines don't have to be straight and, you know, trees can be different shapes. They can be weathered and that's beautiful. Um, so, you know, the sense of wabi-sabi in a say in a forest is kind of evident because i think we're naturally in that mode but I, I think what's also valuable about say something like that is you know you can apply that to phenomena outside of nature as well which is also valuable you know in terms of say getting away from that consumerist mindset of thinking things need to be new and unscratched and un, you know and untarnished but actually there's beauty in even kind of older objects we don't need to throw them away we can preserve them or recycle them reuse them and so on so it's a nice attitude um, but I think being in nature, I think evokes that 
aesthetic sense quite naturally, which is really beautiful. And there's there's many many similar ones like that. I mean, Japanese poetry is full of these. Well, it's very nature based. I mean, and then lots of words capturing different emotional and experiential states you can get in in nature. But then also just trying to, I think, having these concepts can almost, I guess, accentuate or heighten the appreciation. Yeah. So yeah, there's there's many that touch upon the topic, and like you say. You mentioned others. There's a because I've divided my words into different themes and categories, and one of them is ambivalent emotions and experiences, which is also interesting because um, you mentioned there saudage. Yeah. I'm sure I'm not pronouncing it quite right either. But you know, these emotions we might experience in relation to nature, um, because there's lots of powerful emotions, and they might not always be strictly positively valenced, and often they may not be. In fact, but they can nevertheless be quite you know special and, and meaningful or just important mm-hmm. in some ways um so that's you know maybe another thing i would add about the project is it's not just about depends how i use the word happiness but it's not just about happy positive feelings although i do use the word happiness very broadly even to the point where it could include some more ambivalent feelings so it's a very broad term but it's also about experiences and mental states mm-hmm. Um, mm-hmm. Um, so it's it covers a lot of ground yeah um Hanu, what are you thinking about over there? Yeah, thanks, Tim, for sharing those things about your journey and and your work. It's very, very faci- fascinating and resonates also with my own scholarly work about so-called eco emotions and concepts such as eco anxiety, which are also often very rough names for ma- many kinds of emotional shades or tones. Mm. So there may be all kinds of things in inside, and I I, I think that some of these different languages can help us also to name and recognize some of those feeling tones in re- relation to en- environmental issues. Mm. And I was wondering about your thoughts on, on, on that. For example, if you think about climate change and emotions or fe- feelings, so what comes to your your mind about that that topic? Like in terms of the value of learning these different words, I mean, I think it it's interesting because, you know, in psychology, there's not like, there isn't that much on untranslatable words there's obviously lots in linguistics but you know being a psychologist i'm interested in the psychological psychological significance of these kind of words but there is a really interesting relevant literature around ideas such as like emotional granularity and emotional differentiation and this isn't about untranslatable words per se or even words in other languages but just the value generally of increasing one's emotional granularity and differentiation but like this You know, for anyone who has kids or has been around kids, this is something you'd know anyway. You know, the, the way in which, you know, kids, especially when they're really young, might have some intense feelings that they don't know what they are or how to name them. And then part of the process of bringing up kids and part of the pro- role of, you know, the process of socializing them is to say, you know, giving them language to understand their experiences and say, you know, well, tell me how you're feeling, you know. And then, you know, that the essence of that process is developing this not just emotional differentiation, but just really experiential differentiation and granularity, having different words for different experiences, you know, and there, there is, you know, there's an emerging literature showing essentially just that that's valuable for well-being in a way that, you know, there's many related concepts in this space, emotional intelligence, emotional regulation, emotional man- management, but just that basically all do speak to the value of having greater insight and awareness into what we're experiencing at a given time and then language playing such a crucial role in that so that's like being able to name emotions but like this like i said it's not just something that 
children go through. I mentioned before my my PhD was on men doing meditation, and they would talk talk about this too. Like in the process of meditation, they would practice essentially introspecting, being aware of what they're feeling and experiencing, giving names to estates. They might just literally sit there saying, giving name to what they're experiencing at any given moment. And that's part of their meditation, meditative protest. So, you know, away from the untranslatability per se, there is kind of different forms of literature around just the value of naming our experience, you know, even or maybe even especially these negative states, because people can get lost in a kind of whirlwind of inner if it's a kind of chaos or turmoil or just they're not sure what's going on they just know it doesn't feel good but then once they start to give a name to it then perhaps they can you know start to understand understand its dynamics better yeah. and its patterns so I, I do think there is this solid evidence for the value of just developing this kind of granularity and then for me that's where the untranslatability part comes in because mm-hmm. that can mm-hmm. really help in that because yeah you can get lots of granularity just in one's own language. Like English has plenty of words, but you can just go even further or having kind of an even more nuanced set of co- cognitive tools if you can bring in words from other languages too. And then like, that applies to psychology as a field. You know, because there's a field and people working with patients or clients, whether you're like a therapist or a coach, you know, and you have a certain set of concepts to play with, but then bringing in others. For example, you, know, you mentioned eco-anxiety and then that's a new term and that's proving helpful, as in people having states and experiences that let's put them under that umbrella term and that's useful to give them that term. And then, like say, Panu, maybe there's, that itself is mm-hmm. quite a broad term and there's maybe different flavors, different varieties of it. And then maybe these words don't quite exist yet, but we need to find them either in other languages or you can create them. Um, I don't know if you know the work of John Koenig has a dictionary of, mm-hmm. dictionary of obscure sorrows. That's it, yeah, dictionary um, and that's really interesting because he creates the words um, and they're all kind of, well, as the title would suggest, somewhat melancholic and ambivalent, but they're neologisms. They're his creations, but he draws on kind of uh, stems and roots in, in other languages. They all sort of make sense. Um, you'd recognize some of the, you'd make a guess of what the words mean. But um, so that's not, you could find words in other languages or create them, which is an interesting process too. So. I'd encourage people to look at that. It's a really interesting project. Yeah, yeah. We'll put we'll put that in our uh, we'll put that in our show notes. In addition to some of the work from from Tim, Tim's got both his scholarly work and also some public facing stuff. But just for the listeners, I just want to bring the listeners in. So we're talking. We're some of this is a little bit of uh, psychology shop talk. So just to translate some of the untranslatable psychology terms. So Tim's talking about valence. So valence is sort of broadly is something feeling good and positive that we want to go toward, or you know, negative and we want to we want to shrink from. So that's the broad one way to think about our our emotions. And um, and granularity is just getting really super specific like having a number of vocabulary words, right? So when we're thinking about how do we feel, so it's like having, mm. like the metaphor that I use is like a like a watercolor paint set. I can have just six primary colors, happy, sad, mad, or I can have the mm. expensive paint set that has seven colors for blue yeah. and seven colors for brown and seven co- and, I, and I can have this palette of different tones. So I think that's what, that's, yeah. that's what we're talking about. Is, I would just yeah. say quickly, another metaphor I like to use is, is Google Maps. Because, uh, you know, I always think one role of language is like mapping our experience. Yeah. But then you can just zoom zoom in, and that's partly what granularity does. Yeah. You can zoom into a given state or experience and have the details like the way you do in, in Google Maps. So I like that one too. Mm-hmm. That's great. Yeah, yeah. And then Panu, you, you, you know, Panu's been 
collecting his own uh, lexicon of, of climate emotion words. And someone recently put it into a wheel, uh, climate wheel, which is mm. sort of like, you know, it, it contains both positive valence terms like happiness and joy and commitment and determination and hope and also negatively valenced terms, right? Like a lot of it all fit under that heading of eco-anxiety, you know, so sadness, betrayal, loss, mm-hmm. al- aloneness, powerlessness, etc. cetera. Um, yeah. Pana, you want to say a little bit about how, how, how people are using that, that wheel or anything mm-hmm. along yeah, this is a very interesting conversation. The climate emotion wheel has been helpful for many people, even though it's relatively simple, but sometimes we need also those those simple and colorful colorful things. And what you say, Tim, about granularity, I totally ag- agree with. And we are touching upon another major issue, which is attitudes towards emotions. Mm. And you've been writing a lot on that also, you know, bringing out that the so-called negative emotions are not just negative in the value-laden mm-hmm. sense, but they are very important for our, our lives. And that's linked with the so-called second wave of positive psychology, and you'll be writing in that regard. So would you like to say some something about that, you know, the sort of emotion attitudes and the positive power of negative emotions type of thing? Oh, yeah, sure. Yeah, well, I guess the context for that is, you know, when positive psychology first started, it played such a great role in showing the importance of studying positive emotions, positively valenced emotions, emotions that feel good and just positive states more generally, because they hadn't really been taken seriously in psychology mm-hmm. generally, you know, um, seen as frivolous or unimportant for some reason. So it's, it did a, it served a great function in bringing these to the fore. And then having kind of put that in place, then some of the research started had the had the ability to become more nuanced. So this is not why I say that is because I'm not to suggest that the second wave superseded the first or you know replaced it because the first wave is still is still important. But the second wave then introduced this more, I guess, another nuance to the whole field, to the picture, by suggesting that well, some emotions may be negatively valenced, they might not feel good, but they might be important for well-being. So they might have a positive utility, a positive value, and vice versa. For some, you know, something could feel good, but not actually be that conducive to well-being. Mm-hmm. You know, so there is a lot of talk around negative emotions, and sometimes these can become too extreme, and they might become a problem or a disorder, and so on. But in their kind of more quote-unquote like normal, regular forms, then they have their value. And some people describe them, for example, as a form of information. So you know if you're out at night and you're feeling scared that that fear is like serving a function in terms of like trying to help keep mm-hmm. the mind is trying to help keep you safe and if people are anxious about the state of the world and you anxiety obviously it's not good to, not nice to be feeling that but it serves its function in terms of you know alerting people to the, the state of mm-hmm. the world and maybe also encouraging them to action you know find similar things with other states whether it's anger or boredom you know they're not pleasant they are negatively valence but the point about the second wave was saying well maybe they still also have their their role their value and it's not that we have to mm-hmm. seek them out necessarily or even appreciate them but just sort of see that they might have a, a use and a function and try and work you know, work with that because you know I, there's this idea in buddhism called the, the two arrows you know and then the first arrow is the kind of negative state itself but then 
if that state in is that if that state is resisted because we don't want it mm -hmm. then that kind of compounds the the, mm -hmm. the the stress or the suffering or the issue um part of that with the second wave is that finding a, a value or role for these negative emotions might also help to an extent that uh, in our acceptance of them which then can stop this mm -hmm. kind of second arrow stop the compounding process to an extent um so yeah the second wave really was to say that there is there can be a role for these negative emotions like you say tying this to the, you know, the topic of the podcast really that's that's really prominent that that notion is really mm -hmm. i think true as in when we think about the environment we're going to be experiencing you know most a lot of time experiencing these more negative emotions but then maybe they have their their role and their place and it would be almost inappropriate not to feel them in a, in a way mm -hmm. you know if you look at the state of the world so to not feel that you think no actually this is something humans need or should be feeling in relation to the environment so yeah there's there's definitely a kind of finding a place for them and having them you know recognized for their mm. for their value in that respect yeah yeah, so it's again for the listener and in, in people who study this. The first first wave is capturing and claiming happiness and feeling good. Second wave is realizing, well, there's well actually what five waves. I was looking at Tim's uh, one of his papers, you know. So there's there's you know kind of meaningful life, you know, and feeling accomplished. There's being absorbed and having a sense of flow, you know. Then there's that mature second wave where we realize, hey, you know, wisdom includes all kinds of feelings and some of the hardest times of our lives are the times that times that build our character and make us who we are the suffering suffering helps us to be a deeper compassionate person and now i think tim you're working on this idea of a whole global getting psychology out, outside of the western um, paradigm like you talked about earlier and, and really getting uh getting a global a global sense of things so i i Hadn't thought about it this way, but I think we're our podcast is helping with the uh, with the, the fifth the, the fifth level a little bit here with even just myself and Panu having our dialogue. So, so that's great stuff. Um, and I'll I'll take away the two arrows. That that's that's a concept that I get quite quite uh, quickly, but I haven't used that term before. So it's not only what we feel, it's how we feel about what we feel. Uh, and that acceptance, and that's those secondary emotions. Um, right. mm -hmm. um, that's hard with climate change. So it, things feel terrible, and many things in the world. Like the as we're recording now, there's a major um, tragic war unfolding in the Middle East, and all kinds of things going on at, at this particular day that make it hard to be our best self and to think about what should we feel about these things. So it's pretty deep. Uh, We've got to move toward uh, wrapping up. We could always go more on these talks. We've just only scratched the surface, but uh, either both, I'll turn it over to both of you, Tim and Pano, just what's what's still lingering in your mind about this or things that you think would be good to add to our discussion today. Well, I guess I'll just pick up when you mentioned about these, these other waves beyond the second wave. And I'll just finish on, you know, I've been trying to, I'm interested in how fields evolve and where they are and where they could be going and as you mentioned beyond the second wave there was a i call it a th some colleagues and i in melbourne described the third wave where you know um i mentioned about psychology being western centric and now there's this third wave becoming much more globalized and cross-cultural which is really valuable and important and that's many of the new energies in the field at the moment and directions are heading in that way so trying to get outside the Western centricity and, you know, engage with ideas from other cultures, bring in people from other cultures, make it much more collaborative and global in that sense. 
But I guess finally, and also then more relevantly, I was thinking, where could the field go from here, even from this third wave that's currently emerging? And then I've been trying to make the case that a new wave, let's call it a fourth wave, um, could involve non-human beings uh, and processes because you know mm-hmm, the second mm-hmm. wave is important but it wasn't necessarily global and cross-cultural and then the third wave is very important and it is cross-cultural and global mm-hmm, but it's mm-hmm. still anchored around people so i was saying that the field could and should move towards an even more expansive stance where we bring in non-human beings so like obviously that's mm-hmm. sentient creatures but it's also the world as a whole it's gaia but then it's also the other strange potential life forms you know, whether AI is sentient or conscious, but maybe it will be in future. So consideration around them, um, those entities, whatever they are. Other forms of non-human intelligence, whether from, you know, other planets or other dimensions. Mm-hmm. So just trying to expand our scope of what we're thinking of when we're thinking of well-being and then bringing into consideration, you know, uh, not just human beings, but all, kind of all forms of life, really. And that's mm-hmm. where I hope the field could go. And yeah, that's kind of where my... I guess attention and energy is at the moment. So maybe we'll, we'll see where that goes. Yeah. Thank, yeah. Thanks, Tim, for telling more about that. That's very, very interesting and closely connects with so called environmental psychology and eco psychology, which Thomas has been working with for a long time. And mm. I've been drawing a lot of insight from that also. So literally, ec- ecological thinking, where this relationality is sort of embedded in everything, everything we do. And uh, it's been very, very great to have you here, here Tim. Uh, this has been very valuable for us, and I hope that for you, listen, listen, listeners, also. Thanks. Mm. Yeah, this is a great, a great. I'll just add, uh, you know, Tim's speaking to this idea of getting past the anthropocentric, right, the human-centric view to the more ecocentric, biocentric. So yeah, the rights of other species, the rights and feelings, consciousness of other species, which of course is dear to many of our listeners' hearts. And that is a big part of eco-psychology, this idea that we are we are just part of a larger um, you know, community of consciousness in the in the world. And 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 so yes, it's drawing the lines. I mean, many people study the emotions of animals and emotions of elephants and dolphins and various kinds of you know you know very smart animals. But these you know let's let's just make a commitment to to keep drawing these lines together because I think that's where one of the directions that climate change is pushing us is that's the rite of passage in this area is to think about our relation to the rest of the world. Um, so. Um, Yes, a beautiful note to end on and, and also a, a kind of an intention for more uh, conversations in the future. Uh, so, Tim, what's uh, we're going to wrap up here. It's I, I was thinking it was your evening if you were in the UK, but you're also in the Pacific Northwest where, where I am. So what's your day look like for you today? Well, it's kind of misty and rainy, but I always try to get out for a, I live quite near this forest mm-hmm. park. And I try and go running when it's not too rainy. So I might, I'll, I'll try and get out there. And we have a dog. And we, you know, we have a, a new daughter. Well, she's, she's two now. She's slow too. So she's not a baby anymore. But anyway, we'll try and try and get out for a walk. And we're trying to do that most days because that's important. Yeah. Um, nice. But it's been, uh, it's been great to be with you. I love what you're doing. And this podcast is super important. So I'm glad to be here with you. Thanks. Panu, how's your evening? Mm. Well, a very Finnish one. Uh, we have a sauna shift 
with the fam- family one hour from now. So doing some wrapping up in, in the kitchen and then heading to sauna. So that's going to be w- w- wonderful. One. That's great. Well, I'm going to, I'm going to move to my, uh, my therapist, uh, climate conscious therapist training group that I run in a few minutes here. And we'll be talking about our episode. And I always love our podcast because it brings fresh ideas in, into our work. And we've been working on helping people learn how to cope with mental health impacts of climate change. So this, um, two arrows uh, idea is something I'm going to talk about today and be aware of. So thank you both very much. We'll, uh, um, we'll let, let, let everybody know when this episode's coming out. This is Climate Change and Happiness. You can find us at climatechangeandhappiness.com. And um, listeners and Panu and Tim, be well. Take care. Thank you. The Climate Change and Happiness podcast is a self-funded volunteer effort. Please support us so we can keep bringing you messages of coping and thriving. See the donate page at climatechangeandhappiness.com.